season three it is season three everybody we have been having a very very busy semester so far it is cold outside not as cold here as it is over where robin and trisha are how cold is it up there robin robin couldn't start a car (laughs) that was yesterday today was uh what 17 today 17 but it's about 35 here it's like 40 something here Okay, so really we can't it's complain very, about the cold. It's very chilly, all right? Well, this Wednesday, yeah, this Wednesday our high is negative three. So yeah. oh. it's going to be crazy. The high? The high? Yeah, the high is negative three. What's the low? Like negative 15 or something. Yeah, something like that. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how people exist in that kind I of don't world. know why I'm here, guys. I don't. Anyways. We don't know why. We wish you were here. Well, um, the thought of talking about research and learning about our guest today should keep you all warm in your boots. We have a special <laughs> guest. Her name is Trisha, and we're going to learn a lot about her research. I think this is going to be awesome. She's talking about SLA. She's talking about teaching. She's talking about VR. She's talking about virtual reality. Right. Something that I think is going to definitely take over. The robots are coming. Anyways, we will be right back. Stay tuned, and we're going to learn all about our guests. The robots are coming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. another Yay. person at UIUC. I'm so excited to bring onto the program. She's wonderful. She, um, she is right. wonderful. There's only like one slight flaw in her um, in her background, but we'll get uh-oh, to that. Uh, I, I know I know where you're going with Ooh, it. I read the bio. I know. <laughs> I, I, that was kind of a jab at all of you guys, but <laughs> <laughs> all good. Trisha is from Memphis, and she attended the University of Tennessee. Oh, well. um, oh. I, I was having a hard time remembering what it was. I was like, "What is it? What could it possibly be?" But then, oh yeah, Tennessee. Um, so she got uh, she earned her BA in French and Francophone studies at Tennessee with an honors concentration. And while she was there, she studied abroad in Normandy. So then she came over to Illinois and she just finished her master's in French linguistics with a concentration in French language learning. And so for her research in the master's, she looked at language transfer in multilingual contexts, specifically the L3, L2 phonemic transfer between typologically similar languages. And she collected data when she was a lectrice d'anglais in Dijon for a whole academic year. Yes, Dijon. Wonderful. Dijon the mustard. Right. Um, and now she's in her first year of her PhD in French linguistics with a concentration in Slate, which is second language acquisition teach and teacher education. Mm-hmm. And she is just doing so much. And I can tell you, like, you'll see her working away and she's just <laughs> like the heart of the department. And I'm so excited for her to be here. So. Very cool. Well, welcome. Uh, we're excited to learn a lot about you. That sounded like a very prestigious bio that Robin provided to us. Right. Besides, besides the Tennessee part. Besides the Tennessee. I mean, 
Yeah. You guys beat us every year anyways. So. <laughs> and we always smoke a cigar after, too. That's, That's a very right. interesting That's tradition a, a that Alabama thing. has. That is really weird. We always smoke cigars, too, but I think it's more like a pity smoke afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> we are very, very interested in your research because we see that your research interests really closely aligned with our research interests. If you will, just tell me a little bit more about your, what was the thesis of your master's thesis? So as Robin said, I was basically looking at the idea of language transfer. I designed this project my first year at Illinois, and I originally wanted to look at L2 to L3 transfer, like forward transfer, Mm -hmm. um, and how knowledge of like a typologically similar L2 can aid you in acquiring, not necessarily acquiring, but learning pronunciation for an L3. I was going to be living in Dijon for a year, as Robin said, so Mm -hmm. I was planning on looking at L1 French speakers who were learning L3 English and had either L2 German or L2 Spanish, because I wanted to look at the contrastive vowels E and I in English, which Mm -hmm. native French speakers always struggle with because they don't make this distinction in their native language. When I got to Dijon, I had a problem because everyone learns English as their L2, and then they learn another L3. I couldn't find the population that I originally wanted to look at, but it actually ended up being better because then I started looking at reverse transfer. So you've acquired English as your L2, and then how can your L3 that you learn after it still benefit your English? Oh, okay. Very interesting. Yeah, so still looking at these vowels, um, and there's been a little research done on reverse sentiment transfer, but very, there's only like three or four studies to have looked at it. Yeah, so that's basically what I looked at, and we were looking at perception and production of the vowel contrast, and Mm -hmm. we were able to see that for production, it did seem to make a difference. So the speakers who had an L3 typologically similar language in this respect were better in their L2 English, so. Very cool. I'm always curious how people collect data abroad because it takes a very skilled field researcher to know how to go into a context in which you're you're foreign in that sense, right? right. And so knowing like exactly all the variables going into it, I'm sure okay. it takes takes a lot of time on the front end. Uh, a very solid methodology. One thing I'm always curious about is what do you do for IRB for <laughs> international research? Right. Thankfully, in terms of methodology, I had the course that I designed this project in before going, it was a mixed methods research course. Mm-hmm. So it was geared towards creating a methodologically, methodolo- methodologically? Yeah, methodologically. Research project, in a sense. And so my advisor, who was teaching the course at the time, guided me through the process of making sure that the project would be, would work well once I got there. But IRB was a little complicated. Obviously. I can assume, um, yeah. You still have to get it, of course. But I basically just had to fill out the form, the same form that you always do. And since it was like a low-risk study, in a sense, mm-hmm. um, I just had to get a letter from the university that I was going to be teaching at saying that I could do this experiment with their participants. And then they let it they let it slide. So oh, well, okay. that's nice. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah, with it, with it being low risk, I mean, you're not giving uh, exactly. you're not giving someone medication or something, right? Or doing some exactly. kind of. I always love going through the RB things when it's like when yeah. I ask you those questions about like you know are you going to like administer someone some type of like are you like inoculating someone for some type of thing with like and I'm like man like what are these guys doing like I want to be involved in those projects like or maybe not maybe I don't want to be. I can't even imagine. <laughs> 
my for projects like that. Though. No. So I guess with regards to your ultimate findings, what was the takeaway as far as your master's thesis? So we found, I say we, because I feel like my advisor works so much for me, but I found technically um, there you go. Perception, found. <laughs> perception, there wasn't necessarily a difference in we think it might have been, I think the perception test might have been too easy for their level. But in terms of production, there was a difference. So those who had the L3 German, who has this EA contrast, unlike L3 Spanish, were outperforming those those other students in L2 English. So we did find that it was positive for production. Um, perception, I would need to do like a follow-up study that was, you know, had a harder perception test to see if I could tease apart any more differences. But. Hmm. And I, since it was mixed methods, I had like a quantitative part with their perception and production. And then I had qualitative interviews. Yeah. Like transcribed and coded and analyzed. So. Transcript. Oh, God. Yeah. Transcription <laughs> is typically. Uh, I have like nightmares. I have nightmares about transcription. <laughs> no, but there are so many amazing resources for transcription. Like I we had, just learned one about YouTube just a moment ago. Yeah. But okay. But here's, but here's the thing. And maybe you can chime in on this. Like. I know that there are transcription services available. I know that there are things that you can pay for. And there's also things that you can like rig through, upload the audio through YouTube. Uh, YouTube mm-hmm. will create subtitles and you just basically take the subtitles and use that as your transcription. And fix them. But there's, right. also, there's, also an, there's also an argument against that and against like, you know, paying someone or having like a research assistant do your data is that you don't actually know your data if you're not transcribing it, you're not actually, you're not actually going through it. I've only had the experience of, you know, being forced to transcribe like nearly at gunpoint. <laughs> like after you get through like a couple of hours, like it's like, Oh my God, that's the only experience I've had. So I've developed kind of a hateful relationship. With right. Them. What do you think? Tell I have, about. yeah, I had 40 interviews to transcribe. Oh, so wow. How long were they? There were between like 10 and 20 minutes each. Oh, okay. wow. But a lot of them were also in French, so uh, that made uh, it more difficult as well. So I also developed a love-hate relationship with my <laughs> transcriptions, but um, I actually transcribed all of them myself. So I tried a few of the free little tips and softwares that you could use, and I feel like I spent more time correcting them. And I don't know, I just preferred just typing it myself. But the one thing that really helped me was getting a pedal. The so yeah. ones you can plug into your computer, and that way you can pause and rewind without having to do it like clicking. That made a huge difference. I love the pedals. I feel like I'm like using a sewing machine. <laughs> you know, like. I cover it until I was literally on transcription, like number 25. Oh, so. oh nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's fair to, I think it's fair to do it yourself. It gives you that moment of like, you're doing your coding or you're doing, you know, you're like, you're focusing your codes or whatever. And you're just like, bam, like I remember, you know, interviewee number five said the exact same thing, you know, and you can't get that. And I'm not gonna, I don't know. I don't think I would have, I'd rather transcribe it myself. So I have the knowledge of it than mm-hmm. have to go pour back over pages and pages and pages and like read. Through right. Of it. right. Methodologically. I, I don't know. Methodologically, mixed methods always, it's always so difficult to do mixed methods, right? Because you want to make sure that both are mutually informative. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the more, the most challenging part about that is to remember that they're not two separate entities. Right. So for, for your approach and granted a master's thesis is definitely just, it's a learning process. You do a master's just so you can learn how to do, or you complete the thesis or dissertation to learn how to do research. Mm-hmm. So what was something that you definitely learned with regards to mixed methods? Because that's, that's not very, that's not often discussed. Right. Um, 
I'm personally a fan of mixed methods, even though it is like a lot harder and there's a lot more things that you have to take into consideration. But I use like, um, so there's several different like, I guess, types of mixed methods or reasons mm-hmm. that you can use mixed methods. So I use the explorative reason. And basically I use my qualitative interviews to explicate what I found in my quantitative data. And so it actually helped us really explain some of what we found that we weren't expecting mm-hmm. to find necessarily. And so I, I feel like if I had been missing that qualitative component, then some of my findings, I would have been like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. I wouldn't really have anything to use to explain them aside from just, you know, additional hypotheses. And Honestly, like for me, it was kind of a thing of you get like moving from moving from the master's to like PhD, which was my first like exposure, like to like research. Like I really looking back on the experience, I really wish that I had done some type of master's thesis where somebody was kind of like, you know, like an advisor helping you, like, you know, holding your hand in a way through this process, because now I know it's like, it's all on me in the dissertation. It's almost like there's like this, there's like a war qual versus quant and it's like you just get introduced to it of like okay there's this war that you didn't even know was going on and you better choose sides and you better choose wisely (laughs) (laughs) that's literally what we talked about the first day in in our mixed methods course my my professor my advisor was like why do we have to choose why can't you use they're both beneficial in different ways Mm -hmm. right which is like why not be practical and just combine them in a way that works and functions and you also can understand your data so much better and in different ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. You mentioned earlier, just like kind of briefly that, and we're, I guess Bowden did too, about the transition from the master's to the PhD, and there's a lot of differences. And so you mentioned to me that your interest with the, um, the phonemic transfer is kind of shifting now that you're in the PhD and you're, you're on the same struggle bus I am on right now, um, <laughs> trying to figure out essentially what we want to do for um, dissertation. But you have, you're, one, some, you're scheduled to take quals before I am. So. Yeah, I'm scheduled to do my prelim next fall. So. Just so much. And so for those that don't know, prelims would be um, yeah, like qualifying or qualifying exams. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in order to transition into the, like the next part of your, your phase of your doctoral degree. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were comps or PhD exams. Yeah. 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 Okay. We take them, we take them once we're done with all of our coursework. Oh, okay. So pass them in your ABD. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I literally just had this moment of fright of like, am I not doing something I'm supposed to be doing? (laughs) This is a constant feeling in grad school. But so now that you're getting closer and closer, I guess, to figuring out what you want to do, um, how has, like, how has that experience been? So it was actually, it was an internal struggle for a bit. I actually spent pretty much all of our Christmas winter break every single day for like an hour. I would sit down and brainstorm ideas Mm -hmm. because I still really wanted to work on language transfer and L3 acquisition but as i'm sure a lot of you know it's hard to do l3 acquisition research using mm-hmm. in the u.s it's a lot more feasible mm-hmm. in europe mm-hmm. um but i also really wanted to be working on technology because i took a seminar on technology and language teaching last semester and we did some stuff with virtual reality and i was really fascinated about it so i basically spent all break trying to figure out like how to link the two in a sense but at the end of the day, I was like, I just don't think it's going to be possible. And so I 
was doing more brainstorming. I was trying to figure out what I was very like interested in. And I, I'm really interested in the aspect of foreign language anxiety and how we can help our learners in the classroom, because Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you guys know, since you've probably taught as well, we constantly see students that are so afraid to speak that it greatly impacts their level of French that they're able to obtain. And so I was trying to think of how can I benefit them in a way as well, because I do want my research to be meaningful not that my MA research wasn't meaningful, but, you know, I was like, if I'm going to be working on something for four years, it needs to be something more that that's not just interesting for me, but that really can be mm-hmm. beneficial to our learners and other people. And so that's kind of where I was like, well, I'm interested in VR. I'm interested in language anxiety. I'm still interested in pronunciation and phonologies. That's kind of where I am now. Of I'm going, I'm planning on trying to look at how anxiety can be positively influenced by using VR. And then also how this can impact pronunciation and how well students are able to learn. It's still very much in the basic, the beginnings of a project, because like mm-hmm. I said, I've literally been working on it for like 20 days now. Mm-hmm. So Nice. Which nice. <laughs> <laughs> is like on the, day, on the, like on the like, wall, just a calendar. Just yeah, <laughs> well, like yeah, new year, new yeah. topic. Like, um, <laughs> so, okay, you touched on a lot of things that I find, for, for me personally, me as a researcher, I also look at foreign language anxiety, so I have a few questions regarding your stance. But before I get to that, you talked about L3, L2, and you also talked about applicability in uh, that statement. I really wanted to ask you, do you think that we as researchers in the United States can really go from researching L2 to researching L3? Like, do we deserve to go to that? Because we haven't really, in a sense, we haven't we haven't fixed the L2 issue, right? We're not bilinguals. We're the most monolingual. We don't, I mean, not that we don't deserve it, but like. (laughs) I mean, I do think, that's what I'm saying. Do you think L3 research is First off, it's more feasible to carry out in Europe, but it's also more applicable in Europe because you have these students who are all, for the most part, learning English very early on. And then once they get, at least in France, they get to middle school or high school and they start learning an L3. But I just think it's hard to research in the U.S. I mean, I know some people, I the few researchers, at least for phon- phonology and transfer is all I can really speak about because that's what my research was on. The L3 research that I've seen done in the U.S. has been always involving English, Spanish, and then like Portuguese or something else. So at least for me, it's kind of hard to research L3 because I want to work on French at the same time. But I have seen some studies in the U.S. that look at L3 with Spanish speakers, like heritage speakers and yeah, I ran into I ran into an issue. I was looking under a it was a German it was a, a German journal that uh, does language research, and I was looking for stuff on bilingualism, and it kept coming up with like three things, and I'm like, come on, there has to be something that I thought, oh yeah, they're not doing they're not doing bilingualism because they have moved on like since like right. 1990. <laughs> it's, multi, it's multi it's multilingual, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I went back and I, I did some I did some looking and I mean there was I think there was like a white paper issued from the um, from the European Union in 94 or 95 that mm-hmm. basically called that was like the first like call for like officially that all school systems had to do some type of like not just plus one policy of Exactly. Yeah, like your native language and then a yeah. foreign language and then an additional one. Yeah, I mean, it is a valid point. Like, should we even be doing that in the U.S.? Because we're still poorly teaching foreign language in middle school and high school. I mean, I think it's it's gotten a lot better, it seems, since I've at least been in high school. But, I mean, I didn't start studying French till I was a junior in high school, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's late. Like, we should be introducing it in middle school and 
No, elementary school. Absolutely, honestly, elementary school. Yeah. The the state of Alabama has a um, it's called Flex, like foreign language. Uh, experiential, uh, which have like flex programs in other places, but the one that's in um the one that's in, in Alabama is pretty nice. But it's just uh it's like one week where you do like thirty mm-hmm. minutes a day or something of like whatever language. I've talked to some people that have you know like I, I haven't seen it personally, but I've talked to people that have seen it and they said it's like it's really like the kids. I mean, of course, kids love it. Kids like saying stuff right. that sounds weird, you know. Um, they like singing songs and stuff like that. But I think that that's where I mean that's where it starts in other in other countries right that's where we should right. be starting with it robin you didn't uh you didn't weigh in do you think that we should be looking at l3 in the united states i still have issues with my l1 as everyone no. knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's a struggle bus um robin, i don't know in case, in case anyone knows robin is a self-identified b1 speaker of english oh, it's, not, it's not b1 you know she's an amazing writer Robin has edited a lot of my. Th- oh, okay. Well, she's a great <laughs> editor. How about that? <laughs> hey, your bio on your website is very nice. Oh, oh my gosh, you read my bio. She's so cool. She's Robin. Robin fangirls over all the guys. You know what it is? Robin brings in the people that she fangirls over. So <laughs> I mean, yeah. Whenever we get in a, why would I not bring people that I fangirl over? Like, yes, well, yeah, that's true. Know. That's true. But um, um, it makes it easy. Okay, so. But yeah, L3 and the um, present, yeah, no, there's, for me and my more pessimistic, cynical perspective, I don't think L3 research in the U.S. is um, very relevant at the moment because we're still struggling through the L2 as you, as you guys have exhausted that point. However, I will say that it's interesting <laughs> that... Um, I don't think, I think that was the jab. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying because like you guys have like thoroughly talked out, I had really... Uh, you know more to say about that um but it's really interesting because in alabama when i was teaching french all of my students were l1 english speakers and that was just you know the typical profile and i get here and i have students learning french as their third language by way of their second language so i have we have a lot of um we have a lot of um asian international students who come through the program and uh it's incredible what they do and they it's very and i've seen those students succeed really very quickly and I've had students who do struggle because it's been they said it's hard enough using English every day but then like to use it in a way to learn French I think that would be a really interesting anxiety to look at in terms of L3 language education however like you guys said I think the L2 is still the main focus because good gracious this country anyway we have to i mean we have to crawl before we walk right yeah. yes <laughs> which is an idiom i do know in english level <laughs> <laughs> you can move up to b2 now <laughs> so um trisha to talk about more about this this interest of yours in foreign language anxiety so so you talked about your experience being an educator did you also experience foreign language anxiety as a language learner I did. I mean, I'm Robin. I'm a very like perfectionist in a way. So I mean, for sure, definitely. But it it more comes from the fact seeing our own students. I mean, I've I just hate watching students when you like, do an oral exam and they're literally sitting there shaking. Oh god! Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. You know it influences their performance. I mean, there's no way it doesn't. So if there's any, I mean, if there's any way, obviously there's always going to be some anxiety, but. I think as educators, like we can work towards trying to improve the whole experience for them. And 
I mean, that might also get them to continue studying it because I think a lot of our students, they're required to do like a basic language sequence mm -hmm. and then they stop after it. And I'm sure part of it, it's linked to the fact that, you know, they come to class every day and they feel anxious the whole time. And that's not exactly a fun yeah. feeling. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, or, so I guess because with every single aspect of research, there's always two schools of thought, pretty much. There's one side that is more the McIntyre uh, McIntyre state of mind where you believe that there's some sort of facilitative foreign language anxiety. And then you have the Elaine Horwitz at UT Austin where she believes that there's right. no such thing as facilitative anxiety in any way. How do you, where do you stand as far as that topic? I think it depends on each person and how exactly. extreme anxiety is that that's how because i mean yes there is facilitative anxiety in the sense that okay if you're nervous about a test you're going to study for it but it may be more than you would if you were just like oh i don't care it'll be fine but at the same time there's also anxiety that can truly be debilitating and that's mm -hmm. what i want to focus on mm -hmm. you know i mean obviously a little bit of anxiety can be facilitative in a sense but you know if you have students that are so afraid to speak and so anxious in class that they never say a word so there's this there's this odd like superfluous and in my opinion nebulous connection that people try to make between foreign language anxiety nebulous and Robin is that a, is that be one appropriate I like, have sorry. encountered the word but um there's this I personally believe and it's no offense to to anybody that believes differently but I believe Elaine Horwitz kind of had it right there's no such thing as facilitative anxiety. But I will say that one thing that researchers kind of failed, and Trisha, you may agree, you may disagree, but and I would like your opinion on this as well, but a lot of people stop talking about university stress and how stress, general stress and general anxiety has this effect on language acquisition. And mm -hmm. people just kind of say, oh, well, that's 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 more general. That's more general education in a sense. But right. I think that I think that we need to start pushing towards talking about, well, what does general stress do? Because we know that it affects your brain. You, we know that it affects your, your performance. But um, Tr Trisha, thoughts? No, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. Like, I think if, if you're investigating foreign language anxiety, you should probably look at anxiety in general and stress in general um, that your students or your participants are encountering. But I feel like I've seen students that they're not, they're stressed, of course, about their classes and stuff. But they're not necessarily anxious in other classes compared to in the foreign language classroom. They're anxious because they feel like they're not going to find their words or they're embarrassed about their accent. So mm -hmm. do you think they're different um, in a sense? But yeah, obviously like you would want to look at all three of them combined. The, the issue with foreign language anxiety and Trisha, you may agree with this or disagree mm -hmm. that we've kind of acted as if, Oh, okay, well we know it's there, but we don't really know what to do with it. And yeah. how I want to segue into uh, your research a little bit more is that we don't really go into, okay, well, how do we fix foreign language anxiety other than just saying it exists? Right, right. it exists and it's debilitating, but yeah. I, I mean, again, I, like I said, I've only just started getting into this topic, but I agree. I feel like every article I've seen about, okay, yeah, there's foreign language anxiety. It can negatively influence students, but they don't really propose a solution. So I guess then you mentioned just very briefly earlier this uh, this idea that you have with regards to virtual reality and foreign language anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, would you like to explore that just a little bit more? 
Yes, I was looking at, I actually found an article that had nothing to do with language learning, but it was talking about how virtual reality was helping with anxiety in public speaking. So they would, you know, practice doing a speech in the virtual reality. And then when they did it in real life, they were less anxious about it. There's been a lot of articles, and I'm sure you've seen this, talking about anxiety in virtual worlds, mm-hmm. like Second Life and other platforms. Mm-hmm. And they've reported that learners often feel less anxious in these worlds because they don't they feel like their identity is kind of concealed in a way oh yeah mm-hmm. and they perceive it more as like a game and you know not just sitting in class with everyone looking at them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but up until now again i've only been looking at this for a little bit but i haven't seen any articles i haven't been able to find any research on actually looking at virtual reality compared to virtual like not that aren't virtual worlds just looking at virtual reality and seeing yeah. if it has same influence mm-hmm. as the virtual worlds do. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why I was kind of wanting to look into that. And I mean, also, I feel like, you know, as everyone knows, technology is here and it's becoming more and more advanced. And I feel like eventually, like we are going to be using VR in our classrooms and we are going to be having to implement these technologies. And so. Absolutely. Here we have. Yeah, we are. We are. Yeah, I have my I, first VR lesson on Tuesday with my class. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. We're gonna <laughs> definitely have to talk anyway, about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, but Trisha, with regards to that point, I would say best of luck trying to find research regarding foreign language anxiety and virtual reality. It's almost as if the United States, as a research community, has decided. Mm, we're not going to look at this as much anymore. Right. I do remember this one time that I went to a conference, sat in on a, it was like an editorial session, and they said, if it has anxiety in the manuscript, we're not publishing it. And I'm like, huh. well, we haven't solved it. That's, right. that's the issue. Yeah. And now you'll see that a lot of that research is taking place in the Middle East. And you'll right. see Iranian learners of English, and they're talking mm-hmm. about their foreign language anxiety. But if you try and find research here in the States, it's a little bit more scarce. When I was trying to think of a topic and I was trying to think of things that interest me, there's lots of things that interest me, but I was like, what has a point aside from just interesting me? Like what can actually be beneficial to other people in the world? Because, you know, I feel like that's kind of one of the things of doing a PhD is we all get so wrapped up in our little micro subjects that we right. care about. Uh-huh. Like, how is it applicable in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. Other people might disagree, but... Yeah. Before we transition away from the research, I have one. I think I found a connection yeah. between VR and the facilitated... My understanding of facilitated anxiety, which is very elementary because I just found out what it was a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you do... You know the uh, the VR games that are like horror in nature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you do language learning to push the facilitated anxiety to the max <laughs> where you force the player. Are we going to have them play in like Resident <laughs> Evil? But you, you have to like, 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 like contemplate that bird no. where he's going to get no. to. Like, that's so, that's so, anyways. I think, we could, I think we could talk for a while about this research. Yeah. Um, but I think that we're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to get into uh, Trisha and your experience in, uh, in the master's program and PhD program and lessons learned. All right. Well, okay. you know, be right back. Guys, welcome back to Gradlings. We have been hanging out with Trisha today, talking about her experience as a researcher, talking a lot about L3 and L2. But now <laughs> all that the we, L's. All, all the L's. L's. We got all the L's. There we go. It's good to have all the L's covered. 
But uh, now this brings us to the portion of our show that we call Lessons Learned. Trisha, if you could go back and think about think about yourself when you were when you were a graduate student or when you're uh, you're first starting this like pursuit of higher education, think mm-hmm. back on think back on your process and like where you are now. What are some things that you think that you would like to go back and tell yourself that little helpful hints or you know pro tips or something like that? Um, I think the main thing would be just to like relax a little bit. Um, <laughs> just said, a little bit. <laughs> earlier I I can be like a little bit of a perfectionist and I like to really work in advance to the point where like I'll literally have like you know a presentation done a week ahead of time Mm -hmm. and I feel like my first year (laughs) my first year I was always like so stressed like if I wouldn't have something done literally five days before it was supposed to be due I would be like panicking Mm -hmm. and now I'm like it's okay to have you know something done the day it's due it's fine like you're still gonna do well you're And so, yeah, I mean, mainly just that, like, relax. It's okay to take the weekend off. I mean, you guys might not agree, but... I completely completely agree. I think it's, yeah, okay to take the weekend off. And, I mean, just make sure you're taking advantage of the opportunities on campus. So we have, like, a lot of guest speakers coming to talk. And we have a lot, especially for Slate, we have a lot of workshops focusing on pedagogy and stuff like that. And I didn't really take advantage of those my first year here just because I think I was so focused on coursework and, you know, just adjusting to grad school. So I've gotten a lot better about doing stuff like that during my second year of my master's and my PhD, but I wish that, you know, I had taken taken advantage of that the first year. Yeah, It's important to take time for yourself, but mostly just, yeah, taking advantage of these resources that are offered to you, which can really make your life easier. Yeah, um, um, I think I think that and the like weekends to yourself. I completely, I completely agree for that. Like, honestly, I do that. I would, I feel like my, like this semester has gone so well because I'm like Monday through Friday, I'm on campus. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course it's Saturday today and I'm on campus. So, but this is, this is not, this is not school related. This is fun. We, we fun, right. Um, but but it's fun, but no, like, you know, I'm, I'm here Monday through Friday from, you know, like I usually get to campus about nine. I'm leaving. I mean, I work throughout the day that I have class in the evening. I'm leaving campus Mm -hmm. at like eight or nine o'clock and, you know, do it, do it again. And then the weekend, like that's mine, you know, right. Yeah. You don't get, you don't get me on the weekend. Exactly. That's what I've been trying to do. I think my first year and even the second year here, kind of a lot, I would just like, you know, work throughout the entire week. Mm-hmm. And this past year, I've been like, okay, I'm going to work eight to five, eight to six. I'll still have to work sometimes at night at home once I get home a little bit. And then, of course, like, I still normally work some on Sundays, but, you know, I'm like, I'm not spending my whole Saturday working or my whole Sunday working, you know, like. You know, like, I guess to, to give the counterpoint, though, and I'm in, I'm in my very last full semester of writing the dissertation on the job market. I, mean, I really would argue in favor of in really enjoying those first years in your PhD program, really take advantage of the fact that you can take a break because there is a distinct, there is a distinction between the first three years and then the last year, right? right Where every single day you have to send out an application or you need to be writing up, tailing a cover letter. And at the same time, you know, going at the Skype and going for Skype interviews, but finishing your dissertation at the same time. So those first three years are very important to kind of establish that routine. Your last year might be a little bit different, but then know how to go back into weekends are mine, right? Mm-hmm. And establishing boundaries. Sometimes with academia, people don't know how to establish boundaries. 
period. There's constant pressure to always be working, and you feel guilty if you take a day off. You know, today I didn't start working until 11 a.m., and I felt guilty about that. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why do I feel guilty? It's a Saturday. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. You and know? the socialists fought for you to have a weekend, so <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. So you should enjoy socialism on this podcast today. <laughs> there, you go, Carl. there you go, Carl Marx. You get one. Because you, you get one. So Trisha, now is the time. We want to know if you could give one hashtag to describe your graduate career as a student, as a teacher, as a researcher what would it be? And I heard there was some deliberation, some input. There was um, a lot of deliberation. Like I said, like I told you guys last night, I was brainstorming because I was like, I have no idea what to do about this hashtag. Um, <laughs> I'm not creative at all. I, I yeah. will argue with that, but in another time. Well, you in, terms of, in terms of like, you know, like fun little titles and stuff like that. I'm always very dry. So <laughs> I was like trying to think of something that was positive, you know? Mm-hmm. And so going off of the theme of like, taking advantage of this opportunity I was like maybe I'll just do hashtag gratitude then my genius boyfriend was like hashtag gratitude love it I love it just because I mean like we were saying I think it's so easy to get caught up in all the stress of grad school but I mean I'm personally really grateful to be here too because we're getting such a good education I mean at least Illinois we're not paying tuition because we have our TA ships you know mm-hmm. you're giving all these opportunities to go to all these talks to go to these conferences mm-hmm. work with these great professors so I don't know that's my motto this year is I'm going to try to oh, focus that is on awesome that I love that, that. was yeah, yeah. Hashtag gratitude. Like, I literally, I have so guilt on me right gratitude. now for not being positive. <laughs> like, well, you know, I mean, that's what I mean. I'm, and I'm, like I said, I'm very guilty of it too. I get super stressed all the time, and like, it's right. easy to be complaining, like, oh my god, I have no life, and we're broke, and grad school sucks. Mm-hmm. But if you like sit down and think about, it, like, we really, like, we have an amazing opportunity right now. You know, you're getting to pursue something that you are so interested in, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll feel differently in four years when I. <laughs> getting close to the job market and like feeling more burnout but at least for now like you know i'm trying to i think that's perfect you know i I absolutely i absolutely love that you know sometimes you know grad students grad students get together and you know we love to complain right it's like all right you're like all aboard the complain train like i'm the conductor this is what we're going to talk about you know Robin like, did say the struggle that, bus several times. Struggle bus it, it is a struggle bus. Like we get we get together and it's just like, oh my God, let me tell you about what, you know, I'm you know, my assistant shit. Let me tell you about this this work that I'm having to do right now. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you that this it's so bad, whatever. But it's like, all right, like really when you think about it, you're getting you're getting free tuition. You're getting this amazing opportunity to do research that you love, like your passion. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean like honestly for me when I was in the master's program, I just kept thinking about how awesome it was that like every single day I can like, I can speak German with colleagues, right? I can, I can talk to other grad students in a language and there's like all these languages being spoken around me Mm -hmm. and how, and I mean that honestly to somebody who like, who loves languages, that's worth it, you know? And like we get really spoiled and we think like, you know, yeah, I mean, the money's not great. Sometimes things suck. It's stressful, but education, which is a huge, absolutely. Like you're working obviously for your TA ship or your RA ship, but you know, we're not, at least at Illinois, like our tuition's covered. And so we're mm-hmm. not having to take out all these student loans and accrue all this debt. Yeah, um, that is. Which with how expensive education in the U.S. is, it's crazy to me that I'm like, I'm doing six years of graduate studies and not 
paying anything. Yeah. And you know, Trisha, this also makes me think, so there's this big, and I, I see it mostly on Twitter, uh, where people are talking about there's no shame in leaving academia. And let me just preface by saying there's no shame in leaving academia. For a lot of people, academia is a very toxic environment that they just don't, they, they don't get the sunlight that they need to grow, right? Like if they're a little right. potted little plant, they need, they need a specific kind of UV. I don't know where I'm going with that. That was really nice. And then you started to expand on it. And yeah. It was- okay. So they needed this. They don't get the right sunlight, right? I'm like a cactus. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Good. Uh, anyways, I'm so, sorry. I started thinking about what kind of plant I would be in academia. <laughs> a succulent? Oh, Oh, an orchid. Ooh. 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 I don't know why. I don't know. What's up with that? Anyways, anyways. Um, but I always think to myself, because now I'm, you know, it's like what you said, right? Like you have all of these opportunities to go to these talks and learn from other people and you get to engage in these elevated conversations. And I keep thinking to myself, what happens if I leave academia? And it's kind of like a big part of like what makes me tick. Mm-hmm. gone right yeah. and once you leave it's so hard to get back into it and it's kind of like this little this little circle that it's very difficult to permeate and get into and be a part of it and take part in the conversation right mm-hmm. and it's really a privilege and i love that idea of gratitude because grad is- Man, that's <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know if it's i don't know if it's like bad to say like that that's my favorite one because i don't want to discount i mean people have had right. some hashtags but like, i'm honestly wow. thinking that myself i'm just like wow mm. that one really i think we're gonna be like talking about this hashtag for a while we're gonna and, I mean, talk about like, i mean it's january it's a new year it's january like it's like exactly like let's be absolutely i'm yeah i feel it wow okay <laughs> i can feel it all the way all the way wow. to alabama i feel the positivity radiating from illinois it's either that or the wind chill it's one of the two so okay. could be the wind chill <laughs> but okay well we have had an amazing conversation with you very Susan. inspiring very inspiring yeah. i've had a great time too i'm gonna go so fun yeah uh, I'm going to go and enjoy the rest of this Saturday because you're right. I should take my time <laughs> and uh, I'm going to go and be grateful and have some gratitude. Guys, that about wraps us up. Thank you so much, Trisha, for agreeing to be our guest today. We really appreciate you coming on. To all of our listeners, if you like what we do, please go and follow us on Facebook at Gradlings Podcast and Instagram at Gradling Podcast and Twitter at Gradlings Podcast. Uh, Robin, our social media expert um, and resident millennial, takes care of all that. <laughs> <laughs> we are all millennials. Please feel free to comment about anything and message, message us, of course, if you would like to be on the show. Also, thank you to Dr. Doug Lightfoot, who's the chair of the Modern Languages Department here at the University of Alabama, and Dr. Aaron O'Rourke, who's our faculty advisor, and CBDB for our awesome new music for season three. I think that's all from the Gradlings. Yeah. Trisha, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. And we'll see you guys next time. Woo! Ciao! In there, in the tree.